you must be listening to SJW, Social Justice Weirdos. I'm joyless feminist Charlie McCorn. I use they, she pronouns. And I am Lenny Peppers. I use uh, she, her pronouns. How are you doing today, Lenny? I am doing so much better. I had my shot over the weekend. Everybody should get one. And, um, you know. Yeah, congratulations on your vaccination. Thanks. And it's probably not as bad as, probably not as bad as getting the, uh, getting the actual thing. So I was yeah. only sick for a couple days. Well, I'm glad that you are back up on your feet and back in the recording studio at SJW Studios. Because uh, today, as promised, we're going to have a fun little discussion about Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Yes, I am 100% here for Frankenstein. So I know that this is such a silly question for me to ask you based on sort of the, the length and breadth of our friendship and our, our shared common interests. But what are your experiences with Frankenstein? Uh, well, uh, I know nothing about Frankenstein. I've never even heard of this guy, girl, person. Mm, it's a good question. Good question. <laughs> uh, I I love Frankenstein. I read Mary Shelley's book. I read nonfiction about Frankenstein. <clears throat> that's mostly from feminist points of view. I have read also a a ton of of academic research and also a bunch of feminist research on on Frankenstein. Not just like for this episode, uh, which we promised two weeks ago, but also just like through my life. I think it's a fascinating subject, and I think that the story of the creation of of the book and and the doctor and the creature, and like this legacy of of this piece of writing and this sort of cultural phenomenon. You know, people can use the word Frankenstein like as a verb. Like, yeah, I Frankensteined my car to get it to work. But it it's really so much more than that, and I'm excited to sort of explore some of the uh, nooks and crannies of of this of this story. And the first thing I'd like to talk about, I mentioned it briefly on our episode on, on on James Whale, but I'd really like to talk a little bit about Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's mother, mm-hmm. because her her influence on not just Mary Shelley, but sort of the world around Mary Shelley is you you cannot separate i think frankenstein and its writing from her mother and that's it's kind of a weird thing you know famously mary shelley uh had had sex on her mother's grave um mm-hmm. so so uh, mary wollstonecraft was uh she was born in 1759 she was a i, mean, I don't want to use the word like proto-feminist but her her whole kind of belief system came down to that the world is fucking awful because of the way that we treat women. We don't give them opportunities to education. We don't give them opportunities um, for religious leadership. We don't give them opportunities for uh, for literacy in some cases. And she was a strong proponent of fixing this. Her, her whole thing wasn't necessarily like, oh, complete equality of, of the sexes. It was more, the world will be better across the board if we enfranchise half of our populations and not keep them in these, in these gilded cages. Yeah. She was, um, she's written many books. Uh, and some of the things like, I think behind the scenes are probably a bit more well known or a bit more like exciting from her life. Her, she's probably best known for her book, a vindication on the rights of women, which she wrote in 1791, 1792. Uh, and it's one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy, one of one of the first actual written tomes that can be identified as sort of a precursor to 
what we would know as modern feminism. Of course, feminism is usually kind of looked at through a very, like, Western lens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so, obviously, a lot of her things were looking from, a, like, a, a, a white, more privileged position in that. But one of the, the first books to really get this way, I think, is very interesting. Her life, however, um, is probably a bit more well-known for her, like... The word that people keep using in the research is her unorthodox lifestyle. Oh, which, okay. Yeah, as someone who has who has heard various versions of that towards myself, I, you know, my my hackles kind of kind of get up. They're basically only referring to the fact that she had uh, she had um, affairs uh, with men who were not her husband and had a children out of wedlock. That was the the unorthodox lifestyle uh, that people are, have been talking about. It's, I hate it when like. Uh, a scholar reads something like that and then just continues to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it rather than work to like not uphold the patriarchy maybe <laughs> oh yeah it's and speaking of the patriarchy don't worry uh it shows up it can't be episode of shaw without without the patriarchy showing up and fucking things up for everybody <laughs> so she she studied she worked she had this um strong idea of of the enfranchisement of women my favorite story about her, so she was alive during um, the French Revolution. She had just written her book, The Rights of Women, and she was like, we need to put these ideas to the test. We need to figure out like what we can do to get women excited about something. So across the, the channel, as it were, uh, France was having its, its revolution. It's, it's, you know, the Jacobian Revolution, uh, King Louis and Louis XIV, I believe. I don't know enough about French history. I should look into that. Marie Antoinette. And um, Mary Wollstonecraft's like, well, you know what? These women are all really excited for, like, freedom. I bet I could go, like, get in on this. Like, if I could go, like, get my ideas in with these French revolutionaries. Yeah. And so she went over to uh, Revolution-era France, which, again, that is a that is a microcosm for a country that was having revolutions, like, every 20 years at this point. <laughs> yeah. Also, at this time, England and France were, like, almost on the brink of war. And all of her English friends were like, you should not go over there, you fucking moonbat. What are you going to do? What are you going to accomplish there? <laughs> and she and she went over and she tried to, like, promote these ideas of, of feminism, which, guess what, were largely rejected by the men in charge. She was in, she was in Paris during the Reign of Terror and, in fact, was present um, at the execution of King Louis. Really? She watched him like she has in one of her diaries. She writes about like watching the carriage with him driving like to the guillotine. And this this feeling of just like, wow, that is not at all. How, like She was expecting like a guy to be like sobbing or crying, but she was really kind of struck by how he just kind of was this, just there for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So then she meets um, William uh, Godwin. Um William Godwin, who would be the the uh, the father of Mary Shelley, the two of them fall in love. She, he is he is a big fan of Mary Wollstonecraft. He is he puts her on a pedestal. Um, she becomes pregnant with their uh, her second daughter, which would grow up to be uh, Mary Shelley. But then the delivery did not go well. Um, her placenta got all fucked up and got trapped inside of her, and it went bad and started to rot. And then eleven days later. She dies, 1797. Oh, my gosh. Born 1759, died 1797. Mary Wollstonecraft, dead at age 38. Wow, that's younger than I am. 
so all of all of this is just sort of the lead up to her daughter who grew up hearing all of these stories about her mother, this impossible woman who did all of these things women weren't supposed to do. This was also kind of um, complicated that her her uh, widower, Wilson Crafts' widower, um, Godwin, wrote a a small uh, like biography of her. Like it's it's more complicated than that. But remember, he was very big on like, oh, she's great, she's wonderful. But all of the things that he talked about, readers of the time were like, oh, she had sex out of marriage and had bastard children. What an awful person. Women shouldn't be like that. No, her ideas on women are bad because she had sex out of marriage. Like, it destroyed Wollstonecraft's reputation. Like, she, like she was like known worldwide. And this book, where he was like just trying to like, like, but no, look, she isn't like she isn't owned by a man. People are like, oh my god, she's not owned by a man. She must be awful. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously, no man wanted her. Like, <laughs> absolutely not. She know. was too busy. She was too busy engaging in French revolutionary philosophy. So Mary Shelley then grows up under the shadow of her mother. Um, in fact, as we mentioned earlier, like she does um, lose her virginity, which again, social contract loaded comment, but. On her mom's grave, which is the the gothest thing anyone has ever done. Yeah. <laughs> and so I mentioned all these things about sort of the history of her mother because Mary Shelley grew up simmering in that, just living in this shadow of, of her mother who did all of these incredible things that women weren't supposed to do. And so it's impossible to separate those feminist, I think, origins and leanings from her, her most famous writing, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And these same sort of ideas about uh, a person's role in the world. Do we dabble into, into what is unknown to us? Do we, do we push ourselves through, through taboos and boundaries to create new knowledge and new information? The, the struggle that, that Frankenstein's creature has, you know, with, with itself as like, am I created? You know, why am I created? Like, am I evil? You know, Am I, am I, am I human? Am I Devo? I think that's in Frankenstein. I think that's, I think that's what that's about. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so I guess my point being with, with Mary Wollstonecraft is how much, you know, her, her sort of proto-feminist philosophy and her, her view on the world, not just of women, but her view on humanity of, of people of that divine spark influenced so much of the characters scenario and kind of genre that Mary Shelley developed uh, yeah. as a, as a young woman. So she kind of was stuck in like this very large feminist shadow that her mother cast before she was even, she's only a couple days old when her mom died. She was. So my mom's a state legislator and uh, very, very well known for like her power. And so I totally get like, you know, being in your mother's shadow. And that's probably why I was a 90s goth. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I'm the next Mary Shelley, possibly. Yeah, of all the people that I've met that could be, of all the people that could develop a new genre of, of horror uh, built around the, the philosophy and ideas of the day, you're probably the one that I could see doing that. Just throw that out there. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of, like, Mary Shelley and feminism, like, she did invent, like, a whole new genre. Like, science fiction as we know it was invented by her 
at this crazy party with some perverts and her husband, uh, like Geneva. But that doesn't mean that Mary Shelley was was necessarily respected. Many people thought that that her husband, uh, Percy Shelley, wrote Frankenstein. Everyone's like, well, clearly a woman couldn't have written something so terrifying. Oh, her husband's a famous poet? I bet he's the one that did it. She had to deal with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even after her death, she, there were still some problems. Um, the James Whale film Frankenstein from 1931, starring Boris Karloff and Colin Clive, only credit Mary Shelley gets in that first movie is um, based on the book written by Mrs. Percy Shelley. <gasps> what? That movie fucking credits her oh, husband for writing it. Can you believe that? Damn. Thankfully, by the time the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, came out, they fixed that and, in fact, have Mary Shelley as a character in the sort of framing device of the movie telling the story of the Bride of Frankenstein. Also played by Elsa Lanchester, who would play the the eponymous bride in that film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mary Shelley, however, what I think is really cool is obviously, like, Frankenstein is, is huge. Like, we say Frankenstein... And it has so many things tied into it um, that weren't from the book or, or were adapted from the book. But Mary Shelley lived to see her book become a phenomenon. Uh, later in her life, she would write about going to the different stage productions of Frankenstein that people put on. And my favorite thing is that one production was so famous for having a big, like, fake avalanche uh, on in the play that... In a scene that's not necessarily in the book, but then, like, other plays are like, well, hey, that Frankenstein play had the big avalanche. We should have a big avalanche, too. And so all of these Frankenstein plays became a, uh, like, had all had the same, like, big set piece of this big, like, fake avalanche they would do on stage. Um, including a parody version that someone did where a giant avalanche of cabbages comes down on, on Victor Frankenstein. And Shelley, she was aware of this. Uh, she was also aware, I should say, about how um, people were using the name Frankenstein to refer to the creature and not the doctor or the modern Prometheus. So something that she's been sort of dealing with uh, her her whole time. Yeah, I had never really con- like thought about that at all. Like, had uh, whether that was like a new thing or whether that had been happening from the beginning. But and I guess applying like larger like feminist thought to the idea of like last names in general like like the very western idea of i have my father's name until i marry a man and then i have this other man's name like it's that larger idea you know there's that like famous prank trick test i don't even know what to classify this as but it says that the best way to see a man's perspective on feminism is to ask him how he would feel about changing his last name to his wife's were he to get married. Mm-hmm. And apparently, based on that, you can get a pretty good idea of what these what that person would actually think about women and the larger ideas of feminism. But like Frankenstein, you know, is Frankenstein the monster? Is the monster the monster? Is the monster Frankenstein because he is the son of his father? Interesting. If, if Frankenstein, if... if uh, Victor Frankenstein were a woman, let's say in the book, would we be having the same conversation about, about Frankenstein? Like, well, his mother's name was Frankenstein. So shouldn't it be Frankenstein? It's, it's a whole thing I've found endlessly fascinating. I know that I've definitely had conversations with people. I try to say like Frankenstein's monster. I'm not like, uh, like one of those like buttheads who will like get on people for saying like, Ooh, Frankenstein. Oh, do you mean Frankenstein's monster? 
Yeah. I'm not like that. Language evolves, but in my life, I I have enough opportunity and I guess need to differentiate like Doctor Franklin, Victor Frankenstein, or Henry Frankenstein in the movies from the monster itself. But if someone will say, "Hey, look, it's a Frankenstein," I'm not going to be too upset about that. Yeah, I mean, because that's something that has been gotten wrong for since the very beginning, for one. From the very beginning, yeah. Uh, I come from, I'm, I'm Crow, and so I come from a matrilineal, um, like, family, where mm-hmm. we take our mother's clan, and, you know, um, where our mother's from is where we're from, you know, things like that. And so um, I had... It never really, like, I hadn't really thought about last names until it came to taking my ex-husband's last name when I was married to him. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up keeping my maiden name for my second marriage, which I'm, like, totally against marriages. So it's to- it's weird that I've had two. <laughs> it's weird, yeah. For someone that hates them so much, you sure do it pretty often. <laughs> yeah. And I Listen, I hate marriages, but I stopped after one, okay? <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> I learned my lesson. No, (laughs) no, I don't learn lessons. I have six kids. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I like to think about Frankenstein, uh, the monster being called Frankenstein because Frankenstein was his, like was its father's name. It's really, really, Wow, something I'd never thought about. You just blew my mind. You know, as someone who has has changed their name to get rid of their father's name, you know, for one, it's something that's always on my mind. The, the way that we name things, the way that we put, yeah, you know, letters together and sounds together to make these abstract representations of people and things in our life, which I know is like, ooh, what a great philosophy 101 smoking weed for the first time conversation. But it, I do have a bit of an obsession with names as anyone that's seen my comedy knows. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, the Frankenstein's monster does not get to necessarily like pick a name. Like Adam gets thrown around, but that's, that's not, that's not any fun. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think so either. And like, it just forces like a, um, perspective into this that really doesn't need to be there as no place there. And, uh, yeah. I would say, uh, like I love, I love the book Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, but you know, maybe there's a version to be written about that where Frank, where the monster is like, well, I'm going to choose my own name and my own pronouns. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. I think that that's great. Uh, maybe we should like create, um, artificial intelligence bot to help us write this very thing. I think that's a great idea. We'll Let's just, have it. We'll enter in all of these Frankenstein like adaptions, but change all of the pronouns to they, them as we enter them in and then let the AI rewrite the entire <laughs> thing for us. <laughs> it's going to make that section, I think much more interesting where, where uh, Frankenstein's monster, where, where they show up and like, Hey, I demand a bride. <laughs> well, we'll just, Say spouse. I demand or a partner. I uh, demand the the. <laughs> Hi, my favorite horror movie has always been really the the spouse of Frankenstein's non-binary monster. Honestly, so. Yeah, 
and I guess also there's, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just thinking about what like a bot might change like spouse or partner to. Ooh, this is my collaborator, the collaborator of Frankenstein. So they might be like, I demand an ally. I demand an associate. <laughs> I demand a colleague. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the cohort of Frankenstein, part three. <laughs> okay, well. I'm also excited for when we eventually take this script and then translate it into another language and then to another language and then back into English. So we can have just fun sentences about like, oh, this is my business partner of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess like larger with Frankenstein too, I mean, the popular idea of a creature, you know, a person made up of different body parts sewn together and then kind of dumped into the world. I mean, th there are some like larger ideas about like, family and generational trauma. Sometimes I feel like the, the stitched together parts of like my parents' worst aspects or like my grandparents, all of these like traits that we, we sort of conceive and put together, you know, we are in one way or the other, you know, we are all kind of these creatures built of other people's suffering and trauma. Yeah. And are we, what's our responsibility for it? Do we, do we, you know, go mad and chase our creator down to the Antarctic? I don't know. Maybe. Do we do we get a doctorate of our own? Be our own Dr. Frankenstein just to confuse things even further. Well, obviously that. And yeah. And as a as a trans person, you know, that that idea of like medical technology doing these new things that terrifies people is something I think is very present in sort of our sort of common, I guess, battle over transgender rights right now. Despite, you know, these procedures and surgeries happening since, you know, the 1930s, people are still afraid of things they don't understand. I mean, it's, it's a pretty common thing to say, but... Boy, are they. People oh. in Montana who, like, wouldn't even normally care or know are in legislature right now. Like, just, just terrified. Yeah, as we're as we're recording this right now, the Montana legislature is currently debating uh, finding ways to screw over transgender kids to prevent them from getting health care, to prevent them from you know taking the steps that they need to be safe. And I'm I'm a big believer in us making sure that kids don't die. So it's stressful to me seeing the Montana legislature going out of its way with with mean spirited, bigoted, unconstitutional, and and just plain mean legislature affecting like what 0.6 of the population of our state. Yep, exactly. Uh, Anti-Indian laws, just so many like really crappy things going through. It's, it's really disgusting. You know, Montana, I, you know, I, mean, I know we're getting a little off topic, but I know Montana has always sort of prided itself on being, Oh, well, you know, we're a, we're a purple state. Like, I don't think that's true anymore. You know, we, we took a hard red, red turn after the last election and not that there's anything, you know, necessarily wrong with, 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 you know, various political identities reviews, but Montana's always been a lot more, a lot more gray area. Mm -hmm. It's, it's frustrating. And it's frustrating to see this legislation that we know is going to be directly responsible for the deaths of children, should it pass. And to just trying to do what we can to stop this in the face of overwhelming functional illiteracy on, on behalf of, 
uh, those who are in charge of uh, governing us right now. Yeah, I mean, we are the social justice weirdos, and so it would be weird if we didn't have any social justice in in our episodes. And here's where, uh, you know, I'm saying this is a call to action. Ooh, we, our, we need to have more calls to action, yes. Uh, yeah, our politicians are just humans, and we need to demand humanity of them. And so call your legislators and do exactly that. Or we can take a lesson from Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus and just chase them with pitchforks and torches until they go into old uh, windmills. And then we'll set the windmills on fire and then we'll see what happens. That's maybe sort of a little threatening, actually, as I said joke? that. that w- what a great satirist I am. I am so funny at telling jokes and not threatening politicians. They were blaming the power outages on out on the windmills. I saw that. There are only oh, like saw that. 25% of the entire state's power comes from windmills. So they still would have had an outage even if that wasn't a thing. Yeah. You know. It's the putting, infrastructure. <laughs> applying, I think, the larger metaphor of the episode to this, like we as a society have created this monster climate change that we are responsible for. Climate change is not climate change is not the monster. Humans are the monster for creating the monster. Like it's a perfect metaphor. And unlike Dr. Victor Frankenstein or Henry, if we're talking about the film, we need to not run away to Antarctica because it's not going to be there for one. It's not going to melt away. We need to take responsibility for our creature. If we show a little bit of love, a little bit of compassion, you know, who knows? Maybe Maybe little girls, you know, don't drown. Maybe Texas doesn't freeze over. Maybe we're not going to see decades of strife, upheaval, millions of climate refugees escaping our coastal cities. Like, hey, this is we we need to literally be chasing climate change with pitchforks and torches. Like we need to. Yep. We need to be responsible for our actions. And we need to we need to stop this now because it has gotten out of control and people are dying, and, you know, we can sit here and, and laugh and compare it to this book, but it's a really, I think, apt metaphor for, for climate change. You said it, Charlie. You, like, you you did it. I'm so proud to know you. Uh, I think we fixed climate change. I, I hope so, because I'm, I'm not going to stop just, like, running my diesel uh, generator, even when I have power on. I got to make sure that it's up and running all the time. Also, I used so much fucking hairspray in the 90s and 2000s. Like, this is mostly my fault. Like, I was getting my hair closer to God every day. (laughs) So that I feel a little responsible for um, all my cool hairdos back in the day. Um, But I recycle. But, you know, as as the Unabomber was famously right about, recycling is kind of a scam. Maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah, I... All of my recycling views come straight from the Unabomber's manifesto, so. Well, yeah, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for humanity. <laughs> oh my god, Charlie, did you read the Unabomber's manifesto? I had, um, <laughs> okay, first of all, yes, <laughs> I have, kidding, but... <laughs> shout out to, shout out to friend of the show, uh, Gilmore McLean, who was studying environmental philosophy uh, when she was living in Missoula when we were, when we were hanging out. Uh, learned a lot about the Unabomber, uh, who's our, our hometown, our hometown, he's not a serial killer, but our our hometown domestic terrorist, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Good old Livingston, Montana. Um, I've performed there. Yeah. Uh, home of high country beef. And listen, he was wrong about mailing bombs to people, 
Uh, let's just let me just sit down right here. The Unabomber was wrong to mail bombs to people. However, in his in his manifesto, which I did just quote the first line of because I'm a fucking weirdo. <laughs> Um, but he does talk about how, like, looking at, like, the recycling program, like, one, recycling only works if everyone does it. Yeah. And then it turns out how much of our recycling is being being shipped off and ending up in landfills anyway. Yep. Like, he was he was wrong about mailing bombs to people, but he was fucking right about recycling. Mm-hmm. Yes, all of that. You know, I really think that the Ted Kaczynski... You know the real the real monster was the bombs he mailed. Not him. he was responsible for making those bombs. Oh like my God. he <laughs> he was I the mean, real monster he's... there. <laughs> it's the perfect gonna metaphor. You're going to do this all like day long now, aren't you? <laughs> it's it's awful. It is my it is my curse. It is my curse to apply everything to to Frankensteinian logic. I would describe myself as a real Frankensteinian feminist. Like, the new wave of, of feminism needs a new name. How about the Frankensteins? Like, let's just fucking twist it. Like, <laughs> let's start a band. The Frankensteins. <laughs> Actually, okay. So I did have a band back oh, in the two thousands called the Formaldehyde Brides, where we wore big wigs and yeah, very rockabilly, psychobilly. Rockabilly, yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> The formaldehyde brides. Uh, look at that. No, just kidding. You won't find anything. <laughs> <laughs> that part of my life has been completely erased. My my musical career, similarly, uh, is, thank God, nowhere. I'm so glad that I was playing in, like, shitty punk bands before social media, because afterwards, I would have just to have that stuff out there. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a tragedy. Uh well, hey, speaking of tragedies, uh, I think this is the end of the podcast. I think we're reaching the end of it. I've had a lot of fun on this episode, though. I did, too. And I want to talk about this again, but in the context of um, birth and how um, when a male gives life to another being, how it's considered, like, wrong and bad. And So I want to, like, touch on this again in the future. I, I think, think there's some really cool Frankenstein. Danian, like, stuff there that we could still bring into other episodes. Or we could just start a Frankenstein podcast. Maybe we accidentally already have. Like, hey, I know you've been listening. Hey, listen, listeners, I know you've been loving the SJW uh, antics, but what if this was just about Frankenstein for 30 minutes every week, you know? Just just Frankenstein this, Frankenstein that, modern Prometheus this, modern Prometheus that. Uh, I'm going to say it, though. I'm pretty sure Frankenstein is about colonialism, so... Ooh, I think this is de- see this is definitely a subject we need to we need to touch back on again. I think um, will that be next week or is there another topic for next week we're going to be talking about, Lenny? Um, I have several ideas, so it's going to be a surprise. We're going Ooh. to do a grab bag. Oh, for, love for my episode next week. I am excited to get to it. Um, anything else that we should add? Um, hey, speaking of calls to action. If you like this here podcast, you should tell your friends. Uh, if you don't like it, please tell your enemies. I'm sure they'll fucking love it, those jerks. Yeah, and rate us on social, like rate us on Amazon Music and on i Apple Music. It's Apple Music now and not iTunes anymore, iTunes, right? Apple Podcast. Hey, listen, wherever you're listening to this right now, there's probably some sort of uh, star rating. Give us as many stars as you can, because there are so many stars in this podcast. Give us at least, you know what? 
if it goes to five, give us five stars. If it goes to seven, give us six stars. We're not at seven stars yet, but we're at least at five stars out of five. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this has been a really, really great episode. I am Lenny Peppers. I'm Charlie McCorn. And remember, you might not be able to change the world, but you can at least throw a brick. <laughs>